0: Welcome to First Generation Burden, a series of conversations with immigrants and the children of immigrants. My name is Rich Tu, and I'm your host. This is the 33rd episode of First Gen Burden, and also the first of a couple of special drops after Season 4, leading into Season 5, coming out sometime soon. Uh, This episode is a live one. It's another First Gen conversation. It was recorded on September 12th at Parsons, the new school. And it's with Benjamin Evans. He's the inclusive design lead over at Airbnb. And we had this conversation in front of about 120 people at the Bob and Sheila Earl Lecture Hall. We talk a lot about his life, his upbringing in the UK, his father, Mr. Motivator, who some of you over in the UK might be very familiar with. Also, uh, we talk about his training as an actor, um, a Shakespearean actor. And how he ended up at Airbnb and then we go into... A lot of the inclusive design practices that Airbnb has taken on as of late. It's really fascinating. And also we do a super rapid fire succession of audience questions. It gets really intense and it gets kind of spicy. But honestly, the really sick part of me loves that. So hope you guys enjoy it. And also shout out to AIGA New York for making all of this possible for setting up the venue and also for setting up the audio capture, which is always the toughest part for an event like this. So... Shout out to all those guys, the board, making it happen. Here you go. Episode 33, First Gen Conversation with Benjamin Evans. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the first event for AIGA New York's new season. So thank you for coming, everybody. This is super special. I know it's rainy outside. It's uh, It's very warm outside. It's not the most comfortable, but... Thankfully, we are in a great environment right now, and you're with great people, and you're about to hear from a really amazing human being. So, everybody, my name is Rich, too, if you don't know who I am, Um, and on behalf of AIGA New York, welcome. So, for tonight's Q&A, we're going to do something different. If you're unfamiliar with it, we're doing the Pigeonhole uh, app website. You can just go right to pigeonhole.at. And it will also stay on screen, uh, so you don't have to take photos of that. So don't stress it out. So on to our guests. So our guest tonight, his name is Benjamin Evans. He is the inclusive design lead on Airbnb's anti-discrimination team. He leads a new generation of problem solvers tackling issues like racism, sexism, and bias built into the products we all use every day. He utilizes design thinking to help everyone from creative professionals to business leaders create more inclusive products and services. He believes that diversity of experience is the key to not only, only excuse me, not only building better, more profitable products, but also creating a more equitable equitable world. I'm going to enunciate for the next hour. Uh, so, Everybody, please give our guest of honor a rousing round of applause. Benjamin Evans. Thank you. Ooh, that's so much reading. Have you heard, when's the last time you did that much reading in front of people?
1: I mean, a lot because I'm a professional. So. <laughs> oh, but you
0: sound so good doing it because you're British. It's because I practice. Yeah, it? that's true. That's true. For those of you who are not familiar with the format of this podcast, with our illustrious guest, they usually tell us uh, to start a little bit about who they are, where they're from, and then we just kick off from there.
1: Sure. Um, yeah, so obviously, I'm, I'm Benjamin. I originally grew up in London and Guyana and Jamaica. As a kid, I never wanted to be a designer. It was completely by accident, and by need. Uh, initially, I actually started my career yeah, as, as an actor in London, where I trained at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts um, before working on stages around the UK. And then at a certain point, I realized I needed a website. But being a broke actor, I didn't have any money to pay someone to design it for me, so I just taught myself Photoshop in the evenings. And, and that was really my first entry into, into design. I want to take it
0: a little bit further back. <laughs> A little bit further back. I want to know, where were
1: you born? In London? Uh, North London, in Wembley. In Wembley. Yeah.
0: Can you help contextualize that location for these people?
1: (laughs) I mean, a lot of people, if you think of London, you've heard of Wembley Stadium. Football, terrible food, rain. It's basically what it is outside. (laughs) Permanent low-level rain and misery. That's kind of London, in a nutshell. So, yeah, I, I, I was born there. I mean, it's actually kind of funny when you said that this is episode 33, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Because I was born at 3 a.m. in the morning, weighing three pounds, three ounces on the 3rd of December, 1983.
0: Oh, my God. So there's a lot this of is synergy, guys. Coming out of there, which, yeah. <laughs> wow. I didn't know that. Well, <laughs> now I feel like this tonight's going to go really well. Or, or terribly. Or Yeah, oh, yeah, it'll yeah. Be terrible. Standard. So, uh, when you were a child, and uh, you said that you grew up as an actor or you were trained as an actor, I I would love to know a little bit about what that means uh, when you're really young in terms of your personal uh, energy and your theatricality, and how that manifested itself, especially to your parents, because I know that you're doing a lot of amazing creative work now, but early, early on, that manifests itself in very different ways.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, if if we really rewind that much, I didn't even know I wanted to be an actor. I initially wanted to be an engineer until I found out that I needed to know math to do so. And at that point, I backed off of that pretty hard. Um, and then I wanted to be a chef. So as a kid, I would always be cooking things at home and burning down the house. Um, but at the same time, I really like taking things apart and understanding how things work. So I used to take apart things around the house. Like I mean, there was one time that my dad bought this brand new TV, really proud and he disappeared out and I decided I was gonna take this thing apart using kitchen utensils. And so he came back and I had taken apart this entire TV and just as he walked in the door, I hit the front of the lens and blew out the screen everywhere. So <laughs> that was my early kind of explorations around, you know, taking things apart, putting them back together. And then as time went on, um, yeah, I ended up working as a, as a chef in a restaurant that was a continuation, and then I wanted to be an animationist for a while, Right. so I went to- a- Oh, wait, wait,
0: I want to talk about the chef thing. Yeah? What do you What do you like to cook? What's your, do you have an expertise, or do you have some sort of favorite cuisine or dish?
1: I mean, I actually really enjoy Caribbean food. Oh, yeah, so, okay. Yeah, so I, but in terms of where I was working, I was working at an Indian restaurant for quite a while, a place called La Porte d'Inde. Um, Still in Wembley? In, no, this is in central London at this point. Oh, see, we're skipping so many things. I we're wanna... jumping
0: around. Yeah,
1: I... totally. Wanna... Yeah. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, I'd, at this point, I had moved a little bit closer into central London, was living and working as, as, a, as a chef and a, as a bit of an animationist, really trying to figure right. out...
0: Well, How do you be a chef and an animationist, and an anima- as in an animator, right? Yeah. I gotcha. So how do, you, how do you
1: do both of those
0: professionally to very um, artistic, craft-driven jobs, like, how do you do both of those at, I presume, like a, a level enough to make money? What? How do you land there? So we're, you're a chef, you're animating, you're in After Effects, presumably, what are you doing?
1: Uh, so, I mean, at these, at the age that I was doing this, it wasn't so much a full-time living. It was, in, in London, we have, uh, when you're a certain age in school, you do certain periods where you will spend three to six months doing like work experience for different groups. And so I was doing that. I was, kind of balancing these two different jobs at the same time. And they were paying me a little bit, but it wasn't like a livable wage at that point. I was just trying to figure things out. Right. Um, And it was really a day and night kind of thing. During the day, that's when I'd be working for Films, and I'd be hunched over an art board, sketching things by hand. Mm -hmm. And in the evenings is where I would go off to the kitchen and just be chopping and prepping and just doing all of that. Were you a line cook? Yeah, like doing that real entry level. Exactly. Really?
0: Yeah. Was there actual training involved for both or was it amateur for?
1: Training for both. Yeah, um, really rigorous training, in fact, in the kitchen because yeah, if you're not pulling your weight, you're, you're kicked out pretty quickly. Right. Um, with animation, it was a little bit more lax um, because they held a certain amount of spaces every single year for students to come in and to learn. Um, this this craft. And so it was a goal that by the end of it, you'd have a project that you'd worked on as well as helping them with some of their projects. And so that was very much just learning by repetition. Hey, figure out how to draw this. Because right. we're so strapped for personnel, we, we just need people producing. Right. Um, and yeah, in, in the kitchen, it was just a lot of hands-on, you know, here is how you dice properly. Here's how you don't lose your fingers with everything you do. <laughs> Don't burn yourself. In. Do you still
0: have a good cutting technique? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Are you like a uh, like chef with like, this? Like brrr. Bob, yeah. are you with like uh, binging it. with Babish on that? Yeah, pretty much.
1: <laughs> really? <laughs> it's one of those skills that you know once you have kind of like chopped off little bits of yourself enough, you you learn and it never leaves you. You know, like once you burned yourself enough in the kitchen, you, you learn your way around the fire and <laughs> do pain, pain lodges in your memory. So,
0: <laughs> do you have a a memory of uh, of a time when you had, like, a very painful experience in the kitchen? When did, Have you ever hurt
1: yourself uh, professionally there? Prof- prof- um, I think it was on the on the first day, I wasn't paying attention. And I was, I was paying attention to one very specific thing. They were teaching dicing, um, and, and I was just enthralled watching this blade go up and down, and I just kind of, like, you know, stood back, and I was like, wow, and I just burned my back on a stove behind me wow. on a giant pot where they... You know, they just keep a pot of water going. Yeah. Um and so yeah, I managed to back into that.
0: And how old were you at gone. the time?
1: You know I uh late early late teens kind of thing. Wow. Yeah. I'm I'm terrible with ages. <laughs> we're at an age now
0: where numbers are starting to be less meaningful, I feel. I'm I'm except for very today's young, three, that's the sort of <laughs> thing. Apparently that means something, but um so so during that time, so you're a chef and you're also an animator. for you was it I'm going to do this and then get out of that? Or was it always a uh, let, let's see how both of these play out?
1: I was trying to find something that that sunk in, something that felt like it resonated on that deeper level. Um, you know, I've, I've always been envious of people who kind of said, you know, I want to be X and that's what they go off to school and they learn and they do and that's, that's their career. For me, it was always a let me try little bits of loads of different things because, I mean, heck, even today I still feel like I'm searching for that thing that resonates deeply enough that I say that this is me, this is my career. Right. So it was, yeah, I was trying out everything. You have such an eclectic uh,
0: portfolio as well. It's true, and you also have such an eclectic uh, body of work and resume. I, I, I look and I think like here is someone who's very exploratory, very searching, um, and and that shows really in all the work, but also I love the idea that you're working with your hands and that you're searching uh, there's a tactile nature to the things that you do am i incorrect in saying that
1: no you I mean you're completely right i I think eclectic's a really nice way of saying confused like I was <laughs> <laughs> like it was I was you know I think when I look back now there's definite through lines through my career but it was very much you know trial and error with everything and it, well like one of the through lines was always about just wanting to understand things wanting to take apart systems whether it be how do things work in the kitchen, whether it be how do you take apart the different cells for animation? Or um, they threw into design and understanding what a user needs. Like these are all things that just kind of fascinated me and that's actually what led me largely into acting was wanting to understand people, and myself right.
0: more. So, so that's a great segue. So when you, Thank how you. did you, <laughs> well, hey, this is a, <laughs> this is a duo situation. <laughs> so how did you end up um, within the theater world? And also, I know like something that we somewhat have in common a little bit is I had spent some time working um on in an agency that specialized on Broadway for a couple of years and then I had uh, a lot of exposure to the world of theater and then I would occasionally would travel to London and then experience some theater in the west end right. and did Did that affect you at all? Was that something that resonated with you living in wembley
1: um I mean the entry point into stage for me was, at a certain point, I tried quite a number of different things. At school, I'd earned some money from some different, I'd start up, you know, I started a little business, selling stationery on the side, and all these other kinds of things that I was dabbling in. Um, and it there's this forcing function in the UK, which is, you know, your, your GCSEs, your A-levels, where they say you now need to specialize, pick the subjects you want to go to college for. Oh,
0: explain what those acronyms mean.
1: Um I have no idea what GCSEs mean anymore. <laughs> it's like SATs? Um, yeah, I yeah, like, okay. that kind of thing, yeah. Understood. Um. And so at that point, I, it was, I needed to focus. I needed to pick something. And you know the amount of weight that you place on those exams or that are placed on those exams. You're deciding the rest of your university, the rest of your career. Um, and so I started to look back at everything I'd done, and really the only consistent thing that had existed, even since being a kid, was some degree of theatricality. Even when I was doing, you know, doing just regular lessons, I would still be in school plays. Even when I was, you know, working late in the restaurant, I'd be kind of listening and watching things in the background. And so it was actually my dad who who kind of helped me figure out that this was the next step that I should branch into, was, was going and focusing in on theater. Wow. Was theater in your family at all? I mean, my dad, I mean, it's not... Theater per se, but entertainment is definitely in my family. Um,
0: in and, what me? In what respect?
1: Uh, so my dad was on TV a lot with me growing up. Um, he was on TV. Yeah, he was on TV. So he was a okay, fit, so a let's unpack that. <laughs> Talk about that. But I'll get some low-level therapy here. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, he yeah, he's a TV and fitness personality, um, and it's mainly about fitness in the UK. Uh, really? Yeah. Can we Google
0: your dad? <laughs> absolutely can we being.com your dad
1: yeah you you can do all of
0: those yeah <laughs> really so what what does that mean so he would actually uh do fitness routines on screen on the bbc presumably
1: oh uh, gmtv gmtv understood yeah. good morning television it was called and so every morning he'd be doing workouts um in the 80s, the, 70s, the 80s? What's the era here? So, this was
0: 90s. In the 90s? Yeah. And so. In the Arnold Schwarzenegger
1: era? All of those, yeah. So, he w- he'd be doing all of um, numerous workouts. He had his persona, he had DVD, fitness DVDs that he released. Really? What was the persona? Mr. Motivator. <laughs> Mr. Motivator? Yeah. We got it out.
0: Mr. <laughs> <laughs> So, what, so how, how does that manifest itself in terms of a day-to-day and also in terms of the way that uh, you perceive entertainment? Because that's, that's amazing. <laughs>
1: um, I mean, the way that it manifests itself, my dad is the most positive, inspirational, centered human being that I know. And it's actually like his journey into fitness really came out of a dark time in his life, where he he was in a fairly dark place, discovered uh, fitness, and then started hosting classes and as he was, like, doing more and more classes, they were getting more and more popular, people were coming around into London, into Kenton, into these different areas to take his classes. Um, he ended up having this, this opportunity where someone said, oh, I work for this company, GMTV. Um, you should come in and speak to my boss because we should get you on TV. And so he showed up one morning with, with an exercise bike that he, that he carried in, like a stationary bike, this is, and he traveled down, on, down into South Bank in London, into their offices, and like just put this bike down in this man's office and said, right, you get on that, we're gonna do some fitness. And this, this guy was like, this is weird, but also amazing. We need to get you on TV.
0: Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> Does your dad still do that? Oh, absolutely. Really? Yeah, yeah, So Mr. Motivator is still active in the
1: UK? He's active, yeah, around it, I mean- I On TV? On TV and also a lot of events and festivals. He's doing a lot of music festivals. At the moment. Really? Yeah. Like a lot. Wow. I'm like, he's going to more festivals than me, which is, I mean, he's, <laughs> yeah. Um, and so it's interesting seeing my dad almost just turn up the volume of of himself into this persona. And so that just became a real fascination for me was more the characters. It was less about the name of the play or the playwright. It was less about the name of the show. It was more about, yeah, what is it like to to someone else and to be in that world for a given point of time.
0: So then when did you first step on stage
1: then? Oh, uh, when I first stepped on stage, I was actually hmm, probably about 13, 14 was when I first stepped on stage. Really? And I think it was The Wizard of Oz that I was in. What was your character? I was the lion. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Yeah. Um, That that was one of the very first. Um, And then, yeah, every single year there would be multiple different productions at school um, that over time, you know, when it came to that GCSE type age, it was, I, I was really looking at a university, a place where I could train in, in theater, because my dad was like, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna go into this field, you need to be at the best. Right. And so in London, we have what are called the Conservatoire Drama Schools. It's like, I think it's about 10 uh, drama schools that are just very specific, and they largely account for the majority of actors that you see coming out of the UK on screen. Um, and so I, yeah, I've made a list of the ones I you know, thought would really intrigue me. And at the top of there were RADA, the Royal Academy of Music and, sorry, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, and L- Lambda, the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts. Um, and then auditioned for those.
0: So how long were you acting professionally for?
1: Six, seven years or so?
0: Shows, plays, musicals, like what were you in? Anything that this might resonate with this crowd?
1: Probably not. I mean, I, I was an Othello and a number of other Shakespeare plays. Um,
0: Is that and, the primary entry point for a lot?
1: I, I assume it must be um, a Shakespearean theatre. In the UK, yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, if you're in the UK and you've gone to you know one of these schools, sure. absolutely. Have you ever rooted. seen the Globe
0: Theatre? Have you ever been to the Globe? Absolutely.
1: And was, was at the Globe for a little
0: while. And you performed at
1: the Globe. Yeah. And so, like, these were, you know, it's all of these drama conservatoires, like they're all rooted in classical training. And so everyone has a strong foundation in, in, in Shakespeare, in classical theater. And then when you branch out from that, you know, we're actually very light on TV and film training, which is, was an interesting dynamic to observe when I first kind of moved out to America and right. I was trying to make it as an actor here, was how much it's indexed in TV and film here, as opposed to the UK, where it's indexed in, in theater.
0: Give you have a couple of favorite lines of Shakespeare? I didn't know this. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I mean, I, I obviously am meaning to put you on the spot right now because I'm asking mean you that. To put on the spot. But I didn't plan to. Um, but I planned to plan to had it, the opportunity arrived. This is
1: years ago. Let me, <laughs> let me, let me think. Um, you can tell me to shut up too. <laughs> <laughs> you need to shut up on your podcast.
0: <laughs> no, this is, this is just the two of us surely like, yeah it's just like like Willard Smith said once
1: um, it is the cause it is the cause my soul yet I'll not shed her blood nor scar that whiter skin of hers and smooth smooth as monumental alabaster yet she must die <laughs>
0: I know. My ears feel great right now. <laughs> uh, where is that from? I, know, I don't know enough about Shakespeare. That is unfortunately.
1: from Othello where he is waiting in the bedchamber uh, debating, internally conflicted because he needs to kill the person. He feels he needs to kill the person he loves.
0: Can I ask why that's a line that you remember?
1: Because it is... <laughs> Good <laughs> question. It's just a really interesting exploration of, of love and pride and the effects that pride and feeling betrayed have on love it's a real darker side to it that yeah it's it's, it's just fairly unique to Othello right. um and also Othello stuck with me because it's one of the few if only Shakespearean plays that has a a black male lead or a black right. lead should I say right um and so yeah it's, it's just a very it's a challenging scene to, to play um yeah that's it just sticks with me. Wow.
0: What was the uh, what was the impetus for that? And also, how did you get into digital design creation?
1: Um, yeah, so as, as an actor, needed a website, wasn't working that much at the, at, at the time, so I didn't have any money to pay a designer, so I taught myself design in right. the evenings. And what I built myself was kind of like an about.me page, but before about.me existed. And I showed that to my acting friends, and they all said, yeah, we, we want this for, our, for ourselves as well. So I started building sites for them. Um, And then at a certain point, I realized that acting wasn't, well, it's actually on stage, so I realized that I didn't want to be on stage anymore, Um, that what I loved about acting was not the presentation part of it, it was the experience of understanding what it's like to be someone else. And so when that realization hit, again, it was a fairly quick snap of, okay, now let's double down in design and let's figure out how to grow a business at the same time. So then how does
0: that, Land you into Chile.
1: Okay. Um, at a hard cer- turn. Yeah, hard turn. So at a certain point with that, I was in London, realized that London is co- I love London, but it's cold. I'm like, why do I need to be somewhere cold if I'm working with a distributed team? So I packed up everything, moved to Jamaica at that point. Um, and after a while in Jamaica, continuing to build this this you know this ad hoc loose agency. I realized that I could actually use my skills as a designer to solve a problem that I face as an actor, which is how do you find work? And so moved back to the UK and created a startup called GetCast, as in to get cast in TV and film. And found a co-founder, and then around about that time, I was looking for seed investment. You know, I'd, I'd been hustling, and because I already had a database of people who I'd been building landing pages for, that was kind of our seed user group. And by this point, you know, just through the extended networks, I was able to get several thousand signups. And I heard about Startup Chile, which is a program by the Chilean government where they give you equity-free, uh, at the time it's $50,000, equity-free. And what you have to do is you have to move to Chile to build your business for a period of not less than six months. And it was really their way of forging connections between um, their entrepreneurial community and the rest of the world. They were trying to make uh, Chile, the Silicon Valley of Latin America, South America, And so I heard about it, and the day before the the, the applications would, would, would due in, I, I put together like a little camera and a video pitch, and at this point I was in a tiny studio apartment, so I had to try and create a little TV studio so it doesn't look like you know, my bed's pushed up against the wall and et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, I've just pitched the business, uh, sent it over with a deck that I designed that day, and found out I got in. Within within ninety days, I was in Chile. Wow! So, uh,
0: I would love to uh, for you to tell the audience a little bit about your experience there, and and also like essentially the crux of uh, why you're here in front of these amazing talented people. To uh, walk us a little bit through how you got to Airbnb. So,
1: so in essence, I was there. We're building the company. Um, sorry, actually, I arrived the money wasn't there, I was one of their first classes, and so I'd already sold up sold up everything in my life, moved out to Chile, arrived, and the equity-free money wasn't ready yet. And there was this sinking feeling because I'm running out of cash, I've got everything I own with me, no ties to the UK at this point, and so uh, I realized that there's a captive audience of startup founders, and so I created a pitch design, a presentation design company, and would be designing decks for them. Once the funds eventually kicked in, um, i realized that i was now kind of straddling two mini businesses but double down on to get cost um, and then that gave me a bridge actually into san francisco because that i started to present and to pitch and had all of these connections at this point and then got into an incubator called matter in san francisco um, and that was again me getting deeper and deeper into into startup world and i after a certain amount of time that's actually where i got a lot of design education was in this incubator um, Gentleman called Corey Ford is the managing director, and he taught at Stanford's D School. And so I got to understand a lot about lean startup, about design thinking, about how to build products that people really love. Um, and, you know, as it is with startups, you pivot a number of times. And by the time that we'd finished pivoting, I realized that we were solving a problem that myself and the team didn't want to solve anymore. And so, and again, I'm jumping forward a fair bit here. What I then ended up doing was uh, closing down that startup and deciding to actually go searching, go traveling in search of interesting problems. And that kicked off between like five to six years of every two to three months, would pick a new city or a new country and would land and just live and work there. So I'd find a business that needed, that had a problem that needed to be solved. After doing that for a while, I actually ended up hitting a, a fairly Bad depression, because all of this jumping around, I still wasn't finding something that resonated with me. But I was writing about designing for different cultures at the same time, and I was designing in different places. That was still quite exciting. So I'm in this this depression. And I decide I'm going to create a project to bring myself out of it. Um, just kind of yeah, trying to use design really to tackle my own my own um, state of mind at the time. And so what I figured I would do is every day I would design something. And I would share it out via, on Instagram. And the goal was to get 10,000 people to smile. And I would count a like or a follow as a smile. And I figured if I make other people happy, maybe that will help me um, come out of the, the mental state I was in. And you know, by day, I think it was day 32, I'd gone from like zero to seven-ish thousand people had liked or followed. And Airbnb reached out because they saw one of my posts. I'm like, do you want to talk about design? I was like, well, yes, I do want to talk about design. And that's, yeah, that kind of, from that point, it was, you know, the fairly standard, let's interview. Right. Um, they sent me a design exercise, um, an Airbnb's design exercise
0: at the time was- can we, can we take it one step back? Sure. I'd love to know about the experience in Chile that you had specifically um,
1: with, uh, with the closed door. Oh, okay, so um, yeah, when I had when arrived there, uh, I'd, I'd booked an Airbnb as a place to stay. And I'd had a great conversation with the host um, all via the online platform and jumped on a plane, flew across the planet, dragging my suitcases, my life behind me, uh, arrived late at night, wandering around fairly lost because I don't speak Spanish and uh, I couldn't find the house. And eventually I found the front door, uh, knocked on it, feeling that real kind of belief that I'd found where I was going to be living for the next few months. And she in essence told me that I couldn't stay there because I'm black. And in that moment, it was this kind of like gut-wrenching rejection. I mean, that night I, I slept on my suitcases in a local park for a couple of hours. Um, it was fairly early in the morning by this point.
0: Do you speak the language? No.
1: And so I, I contacted Airbnb, um, obviously, and they were amazing about it. They, they found me a hotel for the very first night and then like, a wonderful place to stay beyond that. And they ensured that that host was not hosting on the platform anymore. And so that was really the first experience that I had with kind of discrimination and online platforms, really. Right. Um, and so again, like you fast forward years now, um, Airbnb reaches out to me because it's 2016 and hashtag Airbnb while black is trending, which is where uh, black guests were sharing their experiences of being discriminated against on the platform, and they said, we are creating this team. Are you interested in leading design for it? Um, and i mean initially i internally i was thinking like this can be absolutely great you know here is a design led company that is offering me the opportunity to tackle a fascinating problem and then the realization kind of sits in that they're asking me a black man to tackle racism in america which you know internally i was like this doesn't sound no like big deal fun. like no big <laughs> not deal not scary at all it sound like fun but but you know it's it it was one of those opportunities where you kind of think well, when are you going to get to take on a challenge like this that and figure out a way to tackle it using design.
0: How did you feel about once you understood the scope of it? Do you, what was your it what, what did you feel in your body?
1: Well, <laughs> I don't know whether I still understand the scope of it to be honest. I mean I always kind of entered it with this idea that I'm never going to be able to succeed in this field. No one is able to solve racism or sexism. It's going to exist in some form or another. So all I can do is try and move the needle in some way. And if I'm okay with the knowledge that ultimately I will fail, then this is just a great opportunity for me to make a difference. Yeah.
0: Can I ask uh, what? Can you describe the the tasks and the roles of the Airbnb anti discrimination team?
1: Sure. So we are a cross-functional product team, um, and that simply means that we have people from various different disciplines. Everything that we need in order to shift, uh, in order to ship product. So we have a fantastic data scientist, Sid Sidvasu, researcher name is Danico, PM and Diaz, as well as content strategist John Campbell, um, as well as a you know a team of talented engineers led by our engineering manager uh, Pascal Carioli. and we run experiments to try and understand what are the triggers for discrimination? What is it that causes people to disproportionately reject someone of a particular background? Oh yeah, Um, and so yeah, we continually run these uh, experiments to understand it and then try and create these holistic product experiences that really try and show people they're more alike than they are different. So in terms of what Airbnb was doing before
0: and, and what they're doing now, uh, can you talk the audience to a little bit about the experiments that you have run that you can speak on, understanding that we are in a public space, but also uh, what are some of the changes that this team or this group here will have seen across the, the app or uh, the, across the usage of the app that your team is directly affected?
1: Sure. So uh, I mean, to speak about a, a project that we launched, it, it, it took about two years for this to, uh, for this to launch. But I suppose whenever I say to people that we're trying to use design to tackle something like racism, the immediate response we get back is, well, if you just remove profile photos, then you've solved the problem. If someone can't see your face, then they can't discriminate based on the color of your skin, which is not quite true. And what it can also do is actually just shift the danger from being an online rejection to an in-person rejection. However, there is something that our team, um, a lot of our experiments, shown and really just highlighted, it's kind of known within uh, psychology, is that we all have bias. Um, And to anyone who doesn't know what that is, it's just really our brain continually makes shortcuts as a way to help us navigate a world in which we're overwhelmed with information. And so when we think of a problem like discrimination, we often think that there is this pocket of extreme racists who are causing all of the problems. And it's actually not that at all. It's that we all have bias. And people are just rejecting based upon a subconscious shortcut they've made. And so, as a team, we don't believe you should ever have to hide who you are in order to um, be accepted on the platform. However, there is a role that unconscious bias is playing where people are seeing a black face or a face that is unfamiliar to them. And they don't necessarily know that it's, oh, it's because this person is black or because they identify in a certain way. They don't know that. They just feel uneasy about it and then almost reverse rationalize it as, well, if I feel uncomfortable, I'm just gonna decline. And so you end up disproportionately accepting people who you feel or believe are like you, who look like you, those kinds of things. And so what we worked on for for a number of years is figuring out how can we remove bias from the decision-making process for hosts? How can we help them make more objective decisions? Because our hosts are great. There are a community, millions strong, of people who welcome from the other side of the planet. You know, less than half of our hosts and guests even speak the same language. And so they're welcoming people from around the world. And so we realize that if we just obscure the profile photo when you have sent a request to book to someone and then bring it back the moment that they've made a decision, then we've actually found a way to help you make a more objective decision in a way that, um, it's still safe because you still see the face of the person who's coming to the front door, and it actually gets rid of one of these triggers for bias that that runs within us all.
0: What is the what's the intersection here of the science um, and also the design thinking principles that I presume that a design led company like Airbnb uses, um, and also the unpredictability of what uh, these experiments will mean in terms of the user base? Um, is it is can you talk the audience through a little bit about how your team lands on the design-based experiments that you will run
1: on the app? So we, we try and work as, as transparently as we can with our community, because if you're a part of Airbnb, then it means that you've agreed to our community commitment that says that you won't discriminate. And so our community is, is, is wonderful. like They believe in the mission as much as we do, our mission of belonging. And so we try and keep those communication channels as open as possible. Uh, We do a lot of research with different groups. We partner with civil rights groups to get insights to help us stay connected to the communities that we represent. Um, And this all feeds into the way that we prioritize projects. Um, Sometimes it's based upon what is the most pressing need or what is the most pain that a specific group has within our audience base. Um, Other times, it is things that we know if we make a change now, we will see benefits in, three, five years, like profile photos is something that has an immediate effect, but also over a much longer period of time where we're bringing our community on this journey and helping them understand that you can accept a much wider variety of people and have amazing experiences if you're willing just to kind of acknowledge that we all have bias and to not let it get in the way right. of, of you building and growing uh, your, your
0: business. Something that I thought like uh, Lisa was uh, a visible change in terms of the company's uh, design-based practices, uh, I know that some of these images are flashing up here. Oh, that's you, <laughs> but it's a uh, big head. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it's a normal size head. So, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah. Some of the illustrations here, and also to correct that, uh, someone on your team executed the illustrations. Someone within the Airbnb team designed the illustrations. Yes. Here. Absolutely, so that's
1: Jennifer Hom did a lot of fantastic illustration work with ensuring there is better representation in the way that we present uh, our community to themselves. So whenever you see illustrations on our platform, uh, she kicked off, self-initiated, and and led a multi-month change to the illustration experience. There There we go. um, Where initially, our illustrations used to be very simple and not really representative of the communities in which we exist. And so she went out and found different face shapes and different colors and backgrounds and skin tones and put together an entirely new set of illustration principles so that whenever we use illustrations on the platform, we're actually reflecting the world as it is, our community as it is, as opposed to a hyper-stylized, minimized version that doesn't resonate with anyone.
0: The idea that you're reflecting the actual users and reflecting the user's world, as opposed to some sort of uh, fictitious reality, is that something that is ingrained within Airbnb's design practices because of your team? Or is that was that always something that the, the, they thought they were doing, but were, hadn't quite landed on the
1: right way to do it? It predates our team. Understood. Sure. Yeah. And it's one of those, from, from day one when the company was founded, there was always this idea of being hyper-local, but yet global at the same time. And so really connecting with the communities that we are in and finding ways to have a lot of representation in the imagery that we use um, is something that our photo ops team does a fantastic job and has been doing a fantastic job of. But, you know, there are still rough edges around parts of the experience. And these are just things that takes us and would take any company to understand, oh, here's an opportunity to be even more inclusive with what you're doing. And that's something that Jennifer um Realized, latched onto, and really has championed.
0: Right, shout out to Jennifer. Yeah, she's not here. She's not here,
1: but but she'll hear maybe (laughs) later. She's incredible. Exactly. Uh, So,
0: what was what's some of the pushback on uh, these uh, inclusive design practices um, that you've seen? Is there anything that you can share, of course, within reason, um, that you've or hurdle that you've had to overcome? And also, how can we help to um, break the the pre-existing mindsets of a lot of these big institutions, because it seems like your team is doing a lot of amazing things, and also kudos to your team, and also kudos to Airbnb for being receptive to these changes and also reflecting um, an actual user base. So how do you overcome
1: those hurdles? It's about finding a way to connect with people that aligns with their goals and their values. Like, I, I feel very grateful to work at a company that is so mission-driven. Everyone believes in belonging. However, on your, your day-to-day, different teams have got different KPIs. And so, it is, there's this constant tension that exists between how do you build something that potentially can boost metrics immediately versus how do you prioritize work that may not pay off for three to five years? And often within that, it's about how do we find ways to make the business case for inclusion? How do we find ways to create that close alignment so the teams see that inclusion is great for business, which it is, you know? and on a personal level, I have experienced very little, if any, resistance from designers to doing things in a more inclusive way. It's just, you have to sometimes do a lot of education for people to understand that that alignment exists. Right. Um, you had a great quote about the
0: business case, the three instances of a good business case. Yeah, uh, yeah. Can, can you repeat that to these beautiful people?
1: Sure, it's, um, it's Carl Grove, who's an accessibility consultant. He said, the only things that drive changes in business are things that save money, make money, or reduce risk. And so whenever we are trying to get a team to be more inclusive in the way that they're designing, the way that they're working, we just find ways to align our argument, in quotes, with, with one of these three things. If you are a designer on a growth team, well, you want your work to resonate with a much wider uh, subset of people. Like you want as many people as possible to use what you do. So to be inclusive is great for you. It's just it may not be the thing that is at the forefront of your mind when you're designing that interface. Right. And so it's just about helping people see that this isn't some huge leap you need to make. This is something that actually helps you become better at your job. It helps all of us achieve our goals. And if we can all hold space for that tension of we need to you know, build for the short term, but we have to keep the long term in mind. We have a specific user base, but there are a lot of other people out there. Then we're much better and more equipped to actually handle that, that negotiation and build more inclusive products and services.
0: What do you think the role of social responsibility is for
1: a designer in any case? I believe that we should take extreme ownership over these things. Um, Speaking uh, personally, I I feel that we're in a very privileged position to be able to design things that will become the new standard over tomorrow. Like In design, the products and services we create, they're going to be the things that solve problems for people around the world. And so I believe we have a responsibility to ensure that as many people as possible feel included in our solutions. I, th- I think that we should take end-to-end ownership over this. And I think if we don't, then are we really doing our jobs? Wow. Well, I want to open up the
0: the pigeonhole app for questions. Also, you're gonna watch me fumble through an iPad because I have never done this before. So let's see how this goes. Um okay, great. Wow, this is amazing. I want to use this forever. Um, okay, cool. So Oh, man, you guys should leave your names because there are a few um, anonymous upvoted ones here. I'm going to go with the one that is upvoted the most. Are you ready? When, okay, so in terms of your position, when was this position created and why? What was the catalyst?
1: Uh, it was a little bit, it was late 2015, and it was directly connected or at least accelerated to via hashtag Airbnb World black.
0: Also from anonymous. What does an inclusive design lead at Airbnb do? Who do you work with?
1: Um, so I work with all of our teams. Um, I mean uh, the way that Airbnb organizes there are loads of self every team is a self-contained team that works on different projects and different parts of the app. And so I kind of straddle two roles. One is a product designer for my team helping design experiences that help us understand discrimination, that help us build more inclusive experiences. And then there's the other side of this for our larger design org, where I work with my partners like uh, uh, Michael Su on our accessibility team, um, really to try and figure out how can we create a set, of, a set of inclusive design principles and training and then bake this into the core of the way that we work.
0: Gotcha. Yo, there are four votes here for can we get to the main topic of the evening. The main topic of the evening is this guy. So <laughs> I don't know who wrote that, but I also am going to shade the shit out of you. <laughs> So that one is clicked as answered. <laughs> so, okay. So <laughs> I'm going to go to Amelie. How does inclusive design affect the illustrations of the UX UI design practice at Airbnb?
1: Say that one more time for me.
0: Sure. Uh, how, does the, how does inclusive design affect the illustrations and UX UI design practice at Airbnb? I
1: mean, it goes all the way back to research. When you you have an amazingly dedicated research team, but things like, we have to ensure there's representation in the people that we're actually interviewing and trying to learn insights from. And then this carries through into product choices. Uh, Digital accessibility is a great example of how inclusive design plays out in this particular space. We have a color palette, but we can also make a lot of different changes to the app that will make it more accessible and standards compliant so how do we find ways to ensure that we're baking this and this way of thinking into the way that we design? Um, there is adoption of different initiatives. For example, profile photos. How do we ensure that our design team is aware of the effect that adding a profile photo can have to a specific part of the app? How can we encourage you to find ways of representing people that is not so profile photo heavy? So as a way to give a more balanced and rounded representation of someone online. So it, it, then there's also a lot of like culture-based work that we do which is the inclusive design training. We create workshops for our hosting guest community. We, it's it's far reaching because there aren't that many known solutions to this problem. And so we're very much taking a spread bet on a number of different projects and areas that a lot of them fall outside of the existing work of a product team. Because we want to find out, well, what's going to work? And how can we do this with our community?
0: Hmm. Does your team also address issues around accessibility both in the app and at the at Airbnb, for users with physical disabilities. I know they do, but could you speak a little bit about that?
1: Sure, so we have an amazing digital accessibility team, um, led, led by Michael Sue and Diane Co. They've just expanded it again, so they have, I think it's like eight people now. Um, and the goal is to really ensure that all of the platform is AA compliant. And so Michael and his team have done so much work with ensuring that our design language system, the building blocks of our platform, is as compliant as it possibly can be so that as designers, just by using this framework, the platform is accessible. Um, in terms of uh, physical disabilities, guests with physical constraints, we also have an in-home accessibility team um, that was created around about, I think it was a year ago, and one of the major releases that they led, uh, Srin Mathrapali is, is the PM for that team, was a set of accessible features uh, filters so it lets uh, guests who have some kind of disability be able to search for homes that have features that meet their needs. So if you need a home that has step-free access or grab rails uh, in the bathroom or, or, or ramps, like you can find homes and that's because of the work of this team. How big is your team? We're 10 at the moment with 10? our extended partners. So we have we have a lot of partners in different teams. But so a core.
0: Team. So from a relationship perspective of the size of 10, members of your team on the anti-discrimination team, what is that in relation to the broader scope of the teams that you touch? C- can you speak a little bit about that? Like the the uh, David versus the Goliath? I'm not sure I understand. So in relation to your team, presumably touches a little bit of everything, right? Yes. So there are 10 members on your team. Mm-hmm. Um, how many other teams do you have to interact with?
1: Oh, so we're actually in a position now where we're actually trying to shift from being a specifically a product team into more of a service team because we realize that there needs to be more than us tackling this. And to do that, we have to find ways to empower all of our teams, all of our ICs and leads around the company with the insights that we have, that we have generated. And so what we're actually doing a lot of at the moment is getting into the planning of other teams. When there's quarterly planning, when there's half planning, when there's yearly planning, we get in with them to help Ideate projects for their roadmap to help give them insights that guide their roadmap towards more inclusive choices. And so, I mean, in the past year alone, we've grown from regularly working with, you know, three to four teams to like 12, 14, 15. At last count, it was 22 teams It's who we collaborate with in wow. some way.
0: That's a lot. What has been the worst part
1: of your role as an inclusive design lead? Knowing that... Give I- us the dirt. <laughs> I think for me it's it's kind of goes back to what I was saying before. It's knowing that I will fail far more than I will succeed. And how difficult it is to actually quantify success in this field. You know, the more um groups that you try to solve for, the more you realize that there are even more people who are not being sold for. And, you know, when things get even more intersectional as the way that we work, it just becomes this, you know how do we succeed <laughs> mm-hmm. when, and it's, it's one of those things that I struggle with because I'm very much a goals-driven person, it's, but there's no end date for this work, like it will persist long after me, and so how do I feel that sense of achievement and that we're making a difference when the task at hand is so vast and so complicated? Um, that's something that I struggle
0: with. Right. How much of the, the ultimate goal like, do you feel like you're just chipping away at,
1: at the Sisyphusian task? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's one of those things where I don't ever believe we're doing as much as we could, um, but we're doing a lot. Right. And I think over time, it is just a case of how do we ensure that we're holding ourselves and our partners and our community to a level of accountability that we are... You know, championing this mission of belonging, so that at least directionally, we are moving in the right in the right direction. Uh, what
0: is your definition of inclusive design? I think this is an important one.
1: For me, it's about creating equitable access to experiences. It's about finding ways to ensure and continually ensure that we are bringing people in to the core of our processes, people who are not like us, who who have experiences that sit at the edge of what we believe our product experience to be. I believe that we need to be continually building for and with these people at all times. And to me, that is what inclusive design is. It's building with as many people who are different than you as possible.
0: How do you test the inclusivity of a design? What's the minimum criteria, criteria for something to be
1: considered inclusive at Airbnb? It's, there isn't an end state this. So your design will never be inclusive as an end state. It's just more inclusive kind of thing. Right. Um, so like you can have, if we talk about digital accessibility, um, there are very clear guidelines with things. So if this web app is standards compliant and it meets A or AA or AAA standards, well that's a great benchmark. And so in terms of our product, we're aiming for this AA standard with every single thing that we do. In other areas, it is more challenging because the goalposts continually move. Um, I can't speak too much about how we define those goalposts mm-hmm. um, because we are continually discovering and redefining them as we go along. Um, but yeah, it's a challenge.
0: Sounds like it's a challenge that we'll continue to try to serve. Do oh, this is from Zapong.
1: Hello, thank you. Hey. Um,
0: because you have done so many different jobs and have so many different roles, does it actually
1: make you, um, easier to let things that are not working go instead of just, you know, diving deep, beating a dead horse for eternity? Yeah, no, it absolutely does. Um, There is something that has taken really a lot of years is actually for me to learn how to let things go, because after a certain amount of time, I was just kind of accruing, like, skills and projects and different ways of working, and, and it just becomes too much to try and hold on to. And so something I was very purposeful about doing when traveling, which actually when I started travelling, was was understanding when do I need to let go of something? When have I learned everything I can? When how can I define this is my area of control and be willing to say everything outside of that, I can't do anything about. I need to let it go. Do you work out with your dad? <laughs> it's a great question. All want to know. It is a great question. <laughs> I actually do now. Really? Um, yeah, so growing up, and this is kind of a, 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 a real moment of joy, uh, growing up, I was a really fat kid. <laughs> like, um, four years ago, I was 100 pounds fatter than I am now. Wow. Four uh, years ago? Four, sorry, five years ago, my bad. Five, five years ago? Yeah. Um, and so over the course of about a year, I discovered my love of, of fitness and my love of body and self and those kinds of things and so over the course of about a year i you know i went from you know kind of struggling and wheezing with stairs to you know running 10k every day and running marathons and at that time once i'd done that i i actually took my dad up on an offer of training with him and we do work out now it's a total joy how often um well i've rarely i don't live in the same country as him understood oh yes of course yeah, so um, I mean, I'm actually planning a trip for us coming up soon, and so it should be interesting. Whenever we're together, like a couple times, definitely. That's really cool. Well, yo, we, we should
0: applaud that. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. I love that. All right, I'm gonna try to work on my dad now. <laughs> Do you have a social justice background? Also by Anonymous. Do you have a social justice background? Does Airbnb ever consult with activist groups to help develop programs or initiatives? Do you separate the personal from the political in a corporate setting?
1: I don't have a a background, um, a a social justice background. Um, This is something that I discovered as I was traveling, that there are these interesting differences between cultures, and if we can figure out a way to tease those out and bring people into our process so we're designing with them instead of for them, then we end up creating better products and services. So I don't have that background, and in terms of Personal and political, I absolutely separate like those things out because ultimately, I want to have an effect. I want us to achieve our inclusion goals. And when you kind of walk into the room with a personal agenda, it kind of puts up a barrier between people. It seems like you have something, and it creates this tension. And I something I kind of realized a while back, if you're willing to not have to be right, more than often, you will get your own way. And it's something that was a real, yeah, just a learned experience. If you can leave ego at the door and not try and beat people over the head with something and just show them how by, in essence, doing what you're suggesting, it will help them achieve their goals. Right. Like you're, you're far better able to collaborate with people and, you know, get a win-win situation. Wow.
0: That, that's good advice. Um, very, very useful. So, also by Anonymous. Does inclusive design team? Does the inclusive design team build before or after Airbnb? Airbnb accused for numbers of discriminations. How exactly does Airbnb handle
1: the loss of trust between the
0: company and users? Uh, we're in a
1: constant state of building trust and rebuilding right. trust. Um, there are events that happen in the world because, and this is something that I, I definitely want to drill into a little bit is that. These are not Airbnb problems. These are things that exist within us as humans. (laughs) We all have bias. We all discriminate against certain groups. And it's just that these behaviors manifest whenever you bring together enough people or people from different backgrounds. And so that's why you see this on social networks. And you see this in in different apps, and you see, like you know, machine learning that is disproportionately um, affecting underrepresented groups. Uh, self-driving cars that are more likely to hit black people. Like you see, these our biases play out in all of the products that we create. And so, it's not a specific Airbnb thing. Mm-hmm. It is, it is a human thing. It's just that we have chosen to tackle this, and we do fail sometimes, absolutely. Um, but I feel proud that we. Keep trying, and we admit those failures, and we partner with groups right. to hold us accountable. What are some basic
0: level things that uh, learnings that people here, this uh, amazing group of people here, can take to other corporations that can help them? Uh, what are the tools that you can provide them to tell their teams, superiors, um, other you know people in their ecosystem to help
1: uh, offset bias? I think the the simplest tool that I that I Love to share with people is just the power of a question and that question is who are we missing in order for us to actually recognize our own biases and the role that it plays um, in the products and the way that it affects our communities we have to first have a tool that helps us understand when these biases are at play who are we excluding in different rooms as a result of having a very specific lens and so, being willing to say in a you know in a product review, in a design review, in a management meeting, like who are we missing? Who is not at this table that should be? Do we have representation at this table when we're building a product or making product choices? Who are the people that we are actually not acknowledging within this? Who are the view? What are the viewpoints that we have not uh, sought to understand, or the people we haven't tried to bring into what we're creating? It's it's it sounds deceptively simple, but. If you just ask this question early and often, you actually solve so many of these problems before we bake them into the products and services mm. that we then scale to millions of people. Um, and I'd also say, like, don't try and do this work alone. Um, you need allies. You need people who believe as you believe. And deep down, we all absolutely believe in belonging. We all want to belong. That's why so many people are here listening to podcast that you've created is because we have this sense of listening to unity and belonging. Right, And and because of that, um, we often all believe very similar things, but because we don't explicitly state them, it's hard to know. We feel like we're alone. I feel like I'm the only one who cares about um, the rights of a certain group. When actually know there are loads of people. You just need to kind of speak up and, and give them the ability to discover that you right. exist.
0: I think what you're touching on is so interesting because the the ability to exist and the reason why I wanted to talk a little bit about your history is because to understand the person as a human being creates the context with which we can both empower ourselves and empower other people. Absolutely. Yeah, so I'm a big believer in that. And uh, no, it's really powerful thoughts. Um, I wanna ask a piece of a question here. Um, can you talk a little bit about your design process, but very importantly, how do you navigate this industry as a person of color?
1: So there's a kind of an interesting nuance um, within the second part of that. You have to remind me of the first part in a second, but um, moving to America is an interesting adjustment that I found I'm making because I'm black, but I'm not African-American. You know, the UK has its own civil rights movement and its own struggles with discrimination, but it's very different. What's in America? And so coming in, i it's something that I actually believe has uh, given me skills that mean that I'm able to do this job, is because I haven't had to live as much of a painful experience being an African-American as, as African-Americans have in, in the U.S. And so there is a certain detachment that when I first joined, I was able to bring to the way that we're thinking about it. And something I struggle with is now there's this integration happening where the longer I spend time here, the the deeper I'm identifying with uh, different communities, and the more I'm experiencing and learning about about that. It, it it's a challenge. It's a, it's a it's something that I haven't figured out. I struggle with it.
0: Um, what was the first part of your question? Um, what's your design process? We talked a little bit about that, though. Yeah,
1: it's it's it's. Very simple. It's, it's it's human-centered design, but it's I believe it should be a continuous process where it's not that you just pick one group and then you you know you empathize, iterate, prototype with that one group. You need to keep doing that process, but with different groups and keep finding ways to bring more and more people into this process um, so that you're building with, not for. A little bit of a follow-up here.
0: Um, yeah, ooh, coming up on uh, last 10 minutes. So you have a team of 10 people. How are you working to evolve and grow the team? And how can I become the 11th? Uh, <laughs> right, there you go. There you go. Uh, um, what was your resume? And uh, put your resume in Pigeonhole.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, I'll uh, click it
0: answered. Oh,
1: re- reach out to me. Like, if there are, there are, you know, we have hiring goals that are set. Um, I don't know what they are at the exact moment, but I would absolutely love to connect with and work with anyone who's interested in this space um, and keep you in mind. Should opportunities exist? Uh, You're a public person,
0: though. You're findable. Yeah. Not open up that
1: floodgate. (laughs) Um, And I forgot the first question.
0: Um, How are you working to evolve and grow the team? I think that's a good one, too.
1: That's a tough one. Um, I don't believe that. But Well, I suppose my ideal state is for there to actually not need to be a team. It's for where everyone in the company has been empowered to the degree that they can generate their own insights and are continually championing the needs of people who are from different backgrounds. But to get there, we're gonna to have to transition from being a product team where we derive these insights and then we build experiences, to being more service oriented where we are continually just driving insights and using that to empower other teams to create changes in product. Then probably I would imagine to a more distributed way of working where instead of having an anti-discrimination team there are anti-discrimination teams. Um, there are types of discrimination that exist in various parts of the world that there is no way that my team could understand uh, the nuances of and tackle. And so those regions and those cultures need their own teams. Mm. And then I believe that the extension beyond that is we have found a way to really build this way of thinking into the core of the way that we operate. So these are that's what I believe You know, our longer mission is, is to kind of remove the need for us specifically. Right. Um, because we all have a shared ownership in building belonging.
0: Wow, very cool. How does Airbnb educate hosts on people who they are, quote unquote, unfamiliar with, e.g. trans guests? How does Airbnb give them the language to understand the complexities of gender and expression? I think that's a great question.
1: Yeah, so we're actually piloting a number of workshops at the moment uh, to do with connecting across cultures. Um, And that's really about teaching hosts what it means to be a host. What does it actually mean to have someone from an entirely different background in your home? And how can we help you navigate these cross-cultural differences that can result in discrimination events or at least people perceiving something to be discriminatory when it's really just a misunderstanding uh, based upon these cultural differences? Um, Specific to the trans community, we don't have a specific program right now. We have internal affinity groups that are working on those those kinds of things. But when you look at the scale at which we operate, it's something we have to be very careful in the way that we roll it out, because in every single, sometimes in every city, it's very different, the public's reception um, to people from different backgrounds. And so it's something that we're doing very carefully and and, and considered and with that community. We're trying to find out what is the best way to do that.
0: How do you straddle the line between inclusivity and tokenism? I think Personally, do you I, do you feel
1: also, I'll be honest, do you feel that's a good question? It's something I kind of stroke, because I, I kind of think there's an element of tokenism that you just have to kind of keep going through. Like, tokenism to me suggests that there is a surface level of understanding about someone or a group. And you do have that initially until you have pushed people further and they get that depth of understanding right. about someone. And so I believe that, yeah, initially, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a, Black guy trying to tackle discrimination at, right. in 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 at Airbnb like there's an element of tokenism within that, um, but then you push forward past that and like people understand there's a depth and a nuance. So right. I think it's a hard question to answer, but I do know that you just have to keep pushing forward and help people see the nuance behind what you're doing and who you're working with and how you're working. Sure. Is there?
0: In terms of this question specifically, do you feel that there's a nuance between inclusivity and tokenism between the UK as well as America? Because I think here, tokenism exists for sure. And I think that um, there is the thought of normalization, but still stigmatization when it comes to the people that we showcase within corporate structure. And also, like a lot of people that are, quote unquote, Part of an inclusive initiative within corporate structure, they their struggle is that they are heard theoretically, but then there isn't a lot of uh, shifting of the needle. And it's, it, 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 do you know what I mean in terms yeah. of policy? Yeah. But then I guess it's an also then optics
1: thing. I'm just, I'm just expressing kind of why I, I, I think about continuing to push past this tokenism. Let's say, for example, you have an individual as a part of a board member group, sure. and there's kind of a, you know, perceived to be a tokenism there. Sure. Well, that person is also the first person of their background within there. So it's a necessary kind of step. <laughs> um, the goal is to keep pushing more and more, so you end up with more and more representation and more right. and more different groups represented. I think the first person from a specific background will always be, or at least will always feel, maybe, that there's an element of tokenism, but as long as we keep going, I do believe we will reach a tipping point where um, we will have enough representation in the room that nobody feels like a token, right. because we are just diverse as the, and, and inclusive in the way that we work.
0: Do you think a token can be a spear towards change to break past
1: the level? Yeah. yeah oh, so casual, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, and, and I'm not saying it's something that, like, necessarily I believe should exist, but I think it's absolutely, something that can be used. Like it's, sure. it's absolutely can be a tool. It's a double-edged spear. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, I, I, I don't know, maybe I have a slightly warped attitude on it, but I believe we should use every tool in our disposal to create um, the diversity and inclusion that we seek. Yes. And there will be pain along that process. And we will feel that, you know, it is not our responsibility to explain these things or to be the ones, the only ones pushing for this change. But for me, I, I believe in it enough that I'm okay with you being a token. I'm a token for now, if it gets us a step closer. Sure, um, I'm actually of the same mind
0: too. Yeah, yeah. All right, couple, two more questions.
1: Ooh, it's great
0: questions, by the way. I know these are fantastic questions. Uh, a couple of these are real shitty, though. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> shouldn't be anonymous. Just, it's the internet. It's, uh, it's, yeah, just seeing, uh, it's like YouTube comments up in here. Um, Yeah, there are, like, four that are claiming first here. So, no, just kidding. So. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so do you feel that Airbnb is effective? Oh, wait, no, I don't want that one. Forget that. Sorry. (laughs) See, also, there should be, from a user perspective, if there was a way where I could... Clicked so all the upvoted ones could surface to the top. That would actually be a really good feedback for pigeonhole.at. <laughs> Where's the sorting function? Top, top right normally? Top voted? Top voted. Where, where on here? Where? Want they, they should color the button.
1: Yeah, they probably should.
0: They really should actually, they should color the button and or, uh, you know, blow out that type just a little bit. Are there any specific projects at Airbnb that you're proud of?
1: I mean, this probably sounds a bit meta. I'm, I'm very proud that our team exists for a start. Um, I'm very proud of the work that the in-home accessibility team did to launch a set of accessible features. Um, I'm very proud of avatars as a work. I'm very proud of the community commitment that we created um, in the wake of some of, some of uh, these discrimination experiences, you know, overtly stating to the world that we believe in belonging and we stand against discrimination is something that, I haven't really seen that many companies be very overt about upfront. Uh, yeah, those are a couple.
0: All right, so I'm gonna ask one last question because some of these do feel a bit repetitive. Because you work at Airbnb, where, where do you love to travel and what excites you when you do travel? Uh, I'm gonna end on something very positive.
1: I love traveling anywhere that I don't speak the language. There is something that I love about being able to walk around streets and not understand a single thing. It kind of lets me reset um, my place in the world, that I am tiny kind of thing. Um, Kyoto jumps to mind for me, um, just because it's one of the times where I was able to get so lost because English just... A lot of the places that we travel, English is kind of a second language, and so you can kind of get by. When I was in Japan, like no, that that wasn't a thing at all, <laughs> and so yeah, it's it's that difference of cultures. Um, South America, like Argentina, was also wonderful. Um, Bali, Thailand, yes, yeah, so those those kind of um, cultures that are dramatic, I feel, are dramatically different from what I grew up experiencing. Um, I, I find that they just really help me reset my space, my, my mindset in the world, and help me connect with. Very different people. I'm
0: going to lie. I'm going to have one last follow-up on that. What is something that you feel is a commonality among the places that you have been to? Because you are a world traveler. And also in within your experience at Airbnb, a place that facilitates world travel as well as facilitates a global community. What are some commonalities that you have seen that can speak to how we are all human beings.
1: So, fortunately, this is going to come across a bit like drinking the company Kool-Aid. But there is this idea of, of belonging that I think is quite fascinating. Because when I look at Airbnb as a platform, for me, it, it doesn't really make sense. You know, if, if your average person does one vacation a year, then that means you're placing the trust of this entire vacation in a person who you have never met in person. And so you're flying yourself and usually like an entire family across the world to stay with someone where, you know, less than half of our hosts and guests even speak the same language. And so that as an idea of like trust, that that can actually happen, um, to me is a real testament to the fact that we like to make people feel welcome. That this notion of of being a host and helping people feel like they belong is, is something that is, is present in all societies. And that's actually, you know, Largely is one of the main reasons I joined Airbnb is because we're one of the few companies that tries to help us recapture the sense of community. We connect you online so that you can meet offline, and so many of the great experiences I have had have been as a result of people making me feel welcome and me being able to make them feel welcome. A case in point is right, right here. We, you know, I feel very welcome in this instance, and that is a universal that I think needs to be celebrated.
0: I agree, Benjamin Evans. Thank you so much you. for your thank insight, for your wisdom. This guy just came from a plane last night. I don't know if you slept at all, but
1: you've given us so much. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for having me, and thank you, yeah, Rich, and to AIGA. Thank you.
0: That was an amazing conversation. That might actually be the most nuanced conversation that I've had about inclusion and design in a public space or even a private one. And I thank Benjamin for, for coming through and being so open and receptive. Got to admit that the comments were a little spicy and the pigeonhole app wasn't in love with it, but also I like being kept on my toes. So for those of you that don't have patience to attend an intellectual conversation between two people about design and and inclusion, then I don't know what to tell you. Go to some other event. So anyway, you can find this podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor FM, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. Please write us and drop a review. It helps spread the good word. Go to firstgenburden.com for all the episodes. On Instagram, we're at firstgenburden. You can also find me, your host, Rich2 at Rich underscore T-U. Again, this was a special drop for First Gen Burden, aka First Gen Conversation Part 2. Thanks to AIG in New York for producing this event everyone on the board of directors stacy joe um everyone made this possible it was so awesome thanks to parsons the new school such a great venue would love to do another event there again would highly recommend to a friend thanks again for checking out episode 33 special drop there should be one or two more coming out before the end of the year and then we'll go back into it season five coming out real soon before you know it until then be safe everybody bye